Hi, everybody. Welcome to Belongings. This is a special episode that we are having today. I'm having a conversation with our Director of Communications, Rama Majzoub, and we're going to be talking about the tragic earthquake of February 6th and the earthquakes that actually happened past February 6th that have affected southern Turkey and northern Syria, and I'm sure you've all have heard about it. This is the reason why we've paused our regular programming that we'd prepared and paused this podcast for the past few weeks. And before we resume our regular episodes, we wanted to have a special conversation with you all to share what's been happening on the ground, how we have been affected by the earthquake, our communities in southern Turkey, how Kerem Foundation has been responding, and how this whole experience has been. I also just returned from a trip to southern Turkey to Reyhanli, and I also visited Istanbul to both of our Kerem houses. So today's conversation with Rama is going to be all about the response, the earthquake, and and where we're moving next. Welcome, Hi. Rama. Hi, Lena. How are you? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. It's been it's been quite a few weeks. It has. So, Lena, I kind of wanted us to talk about where we've been these past few weeks and, and why we took this pause from belongings. So, for those who may not necessarily know about our work at Karam, can you kind of give us just a little bit of an update on what you've been doing and where we have been and why we haven't been posting as frequently as we usually should. So on February 6th, there was a massive earthquake, actually two earthquakes that happened a couple hours apart, that the epicenter of it was in an area in southern Turkey near Gaziantep. And the earthquake was over 7.4, 7.6, I think, and the second one was 7.2. And it definitely affected, in a very devastating way, the province of Hatay, where Karam House Reyhanli is situated and really affected the city of Antakya in a big way. It also affected northern Syria, Aleppo, Idlib, all of northern Syria was affected by this earthquake. The earthquake was felt by people as far as Egypt, as, as far as Greece, and people in Lebanon. So it was a very massive natural disaster that happened because this area is on the earthquake fault line, which we've always known this area to be on the fault lines. And so it's a dangerous situation. And what made this earthquake even more devastating is an earthquake in a war-torn area where it's filled with people that are refugees, displaced people, people that have already been through so much and have lost everything and lost home to lose your home again and to ha go through this really a terrifying experience of having to flee your home just increases the severity of this natural disaster. So when this happened right away, our entire team was completely pulled into emergency mode. Unfortunately, this is a situation where we are, we know what this feels like. It's happened to us so many times before during the war, when there would be catastrophic events in Syria. Suddenly, when you wake up in the morning, everything that we've planned, everything that we want to do, and our work that is so much focused on the long-term investment on young people, kind of everything flies out the window and we're all in emergency mode from top to bottom, you know, all departments, all of the programs, communications, fundraising, media, all is happening at the same time. In addition to the fact that our own team in Reyhanli was directly affected by this catastrophe and even making sure that our own team is safe. So 
the difficulty of this situation is that you might not know looking from the outside at a nonprofit organization like ours is we're dealing with, you know, is our team safe? Are our kids safe? Are our families safe? And at the same time, needing to have that outward external response to be immediate, to share news, to share information with everybody who might not have the right information or any information because we are there on the ground. So it's dealing with a lot of different scales of information and all of it needs to happen at once. Yeah, I mean, it was quite terrifying that first day after coming into work Monday morning, kind of slowly piecing together the severity of how intense this earthquake was and then automatically just being in that mode of trying to make sure everybody on our team was okay. And Lena, you remember, you know, it was it was very difficult to even connect with people on the team. And I think it took us a few hours, I think, to make sure everybody was okay. And there were a few people we were really concerned about because we couldn't hear from them. It Absolutely. Really was, it really was really scary, but thankfully everybody was safe. Some people sustained damages to their homes. One of our team members even spoke about this uh, recently on NPR. So it was kind of, it was a disaster. It was really a disaster. I think within a few days, you made the decision to actually want to go hop on a flight and go to Rehandi. In the time where people were fleeing the area and, and trying to, to get out, you wanted to go there. Can you explain what your thought process on that was and what made you want to take that trip and, and go to this affected area? Yeah, to be honest with you, I asked Firas, who is our site manager in Karam House, and he had been through so much. And I asked him, if I come, would this be helpful? And he immediately said, yes. I think that was the, you know, the seed of this because, and it really is similar to what we do all the time at Karam is asking people what they need. So I really asked our own team member what they needed. And when he said yes, I realized, you know, there is something about being there with people and being close to people in this catastrophe and just being there to almost console them. So that's when I decided that, okay, that means there's a need for me to be there. Let's go. And uh, Rasha Mansouri, who is our board chair, she lives in London. When I told her the plan, she immediately said that she's coming too, which I'm very grateful that she did. And within a couple of days, we were on our way to Turkey. The plan was that we wanted to spend a few days in Rehanle and be with the team, be with the kids as much as possible and visit displaced people in the camps that were actually just starting to crop up and um, surrounding um, Rehanle and Hatay. So I really want to know, like, what was it like when you went there? You've been there many, many times before the earthquake. And it's, you know, it's a town that is right on the outskirts of Syria. So what did Rehanli look like now and in Tokyo when you went? So, yeah, Rehanli is a few miles from the Syrian border. We've been working in Rehanli since 2013. So it's a place that we've been to many, many times. It actually feels like a second home as close to Syria as we can actually get physically. Rasha and I traveled to the Adana airport because the airports nearby in Hatay were not available. And that was about a two and a half hour drive to Rehanle to the border. And right from the beginning, you can begin to see how Adana is a big city that was not really much affected by the earthquake. But you can see the minarets, even in Adana, like the top parts of the minarets are all missing. 
that's the first thing that struck me when we were driving. And then as you got closer and closer to the border, you begin to see destroyed buildings, destroyed, you know, stores, bulldozers kind of trying to do cleanup. And that was getting more as we got towards Rehande. The town of Karakhan, which is a town that we actually also worked in before as Karam, which is about 20 minutes away from Rehande, is completely destroyed. And we saw a lot of destruction there. The Hamamat Hotel, which we did so many missions at, is also destroyed. We didn't go to Antakya that first day. Then when you get to Rehande, kind of like the miracle is that Rehande is actually not destroyed by the earthquake. We lost one building, the Alijay Hotel. It's yeah. completely flattened, and thankfully it was already vacant, so there was no casualties. I think that there are a lot of buildings that probably have some damage to them and some cracks and things. like. So there probably will be some buildings that need to come down. But the town was really strong in the earthquake, and probably because of like the geography, the geology, all of the things of like what happened, the town was spared. So Karam House is still in good condition, and actually just got information now that we've done two full inspections of the building, and the building has passed the inspection, which is really good news, so that we can reopen the space for the kids. Antakya, which is about 45 minutes north of Rehanle, it's a historic city. Um, it's a biblical city. It's in the Quran as well. It's one of those cities that's kind of like Aleppo has existed forever. And the tragedy of Antakya is that it's almost completely destroyed. And we toured it the next day and it was a devastation that even after seeing the footage and seeing so many photos being there in front of these mountains of rubble, mountains of just destruction, seeing the remnants of lives that, you know, were completely disrupted and lost in this earthquake was really, really hard. Like new buildings, old buildings, the old city, historic mosques, historic souks, everything is gone. Like everything along the both the banks of the Orentes River, every place. I mean, I was just there in January. So all the places that, you know, I was just there in um, are gone. And and tragically, a lot of lives, many, many lives have been lost in Antakya, including lives of family members of our teams. One of our team members lost her home. Friends of my family also have been killed. So there's so many stories of families that have been completely shattered by the earthquake. You know, parents who've lost their kids, kids who've lost their parents. One of our teammates he has relatives that they lost 30 people in one family at once. And the only two survivors are the grandparents. So these are stories of just what you're hearing from immediate people. Of course, the death toll of the earthquake up until now is over 50,000 people. So it's, it's a big devastation. It is. When you went there, and I know, you know, like you said, our team is on the ground and they, they do right in, um, but what did you find that the immediate needs of the people who survived this catastrophe were? The immediate needs we saw, you know, even from the very first, if we go back even before I went, the very first day that after the earthquake, our team, they were so incredible in the fact that they are also victims and survivors of this earthquake and are terrified of being home and have gone through so much trauma, jumped in and immediately began offering assistance to others. So we mobilized so quickly as a team, which I'm very, very proud of. I'm not surprised by. 
this team isn't just an incredible team. So the things that we started doing right away was providing food assistance to families in need, Turkish and Syrian families. At the beginning, it was to everybody because there was nobody on the ground. There was no government assistance. There was no government presence because the catastrophe was so widespread that there was no way for people to be everywhere. So our team was on the ground already and they started supporting the families that had been displaced, families that were outside their homes, distributing water, bread, food, mattresses, blankets. It was very, very cold and people were spending the night outside because they were scared of the earthquakes coming and destroying their buildings and their buildings falling. So a lot of people are live, until now living outside their homes. So there was a need for warmth and heat and water. There was no water supply. There was no electricity. In addition to that, when in the coming days, they actually began helping in the evacuation process of a lot of people trapped in Antakya and needing to leave. So we evacuated almost 500 people by just renting buses mm -hmm. and getting people out, which was also like when you consider how small the Karam team is and that we're not an emergency response organization, to be able to do that, it was, was incredible to watch and to be able to support because one thing you have to remember about Antakya is that immediately after the earthquake, it got cut off by the roads were completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, the airport runways were destroyed. The actual port was on fire and they lost communications with the outside world. So for a few days, nobody could even reach Hatay and Antakya. And so that actually really created a dramatic need in helping people with food, water and evacuations. Yeah. I mean, it's really devastating, especially the part when you said people are afraid to go into their homes. I think that that concept is hard to kind of even just fathom that people's homes that are remain intact, they're, they're worried about going into that. And we've heard stories from the ground where if somebody needs something, they're rushing in to get it and coming out because of the fear that the buildings have become so fragile. I mean, I experienced it firsthand that first night that Asha and I were there. We were just finishing dinner. We just checked into the hotel. We went to dinner with Firas. And at the end of dinner, I felt a roll under my feet and it was startling. And I knew something was happening, but I didn't know what. And there was no shaking. There was no like the, what typically you think of when you have think of an earthquake. But I knew something had happened and immediately after all of the lights went out and you could see outside the whole entire town went black and people started shouting earthquake, earthquake and running to the door. And that's when I knew there was that had been an earthquake and not just an aftershock. And Russia pulled me and we just ran outside. And then suddenly we're outside in the pitch dark and everybody's running away. And then we got in the car and then we were in the car and then we heard, started getting news that this was like a 6.2 earthquake, that it was actually very strong. And we were very close to the center. Again, thankfully, nothing happened in Daihande in terms of destruction, except for the hospital itself, the major crack that was already and it got worse. And so we were hearing so many ambulances and sirens because they evacuated the hospital. They evacuated the ICU units into the ambulances to be able to tr continue treating the people that needed electricity for their treatment. And so that was the sound of the like ambulances amb for hours. And we went around and around in the car, making sure everything was okay, making sure the team was okay. And then we had to make a decision. And, you know, it's coming from a place of extreme privilege that we even have choices. A lot of people don't have any choice, yeah. but we had to decide because we couldn't go back into the hotel. It wasn't safe. Everybody's waiting for the next earthquake to come. 
And so that feeling, the terror that people are feeling that I lived in for just two days that now people have been living in for over three weeks is actually not the earthquake itself. It's the actually after the waiting and not knowing when the next one is coming. So the first earthquake that happened, the big one on February 6th, that was a massive devastation. But then after that, a few days later, another one came 5.8. Then when I was there, another another one came 6.2. Then just two days ago, another one came and it's coming in different areas, but it very, very close by. And so what people are living through is that this is not something that's over. And now they can actually begin to process and move forward with their life, no matter like, you know, start picking up the pieces. It's something where they don't know when this is going to be over. And so those two nights that I spent at Karam House, because there was no other place for us to be in, sleeping on a couch, there was no heat or electricity the first night. We were sleeping in our coats and our shoes and with everything on, every all belongings on us ready to like flee in one second, but even not knowing that if the building fell, I don't know if I would make it to the door or not, but uh, we wanted to sleep inside. A lot of people are sleeping outside. I saw so many people just sitting outside on the street people whose homes are not destroyed, just getting living in tents, in addition to the people that are just in tents because they have no home. And it's night after night, not knowing whether these earthquakes are over yet. I think that that living in that terror is so taxing on you. And so the mental health piece and the trauma piece, it's really at scale. It's a collective trauma. And it's something that's on our minds of how do we begin to just work on that with our own team and their community. But it's something that literally millions of people are traumatized all at the same time. I mean, it really sounds like it was, it's horrible to live through and it's horrible to, to kind of think of going back to things how they were before. Um, In those seconds, when you talk about those rolls under your feet, what did you feel? Like, what does it feel to realize that you're living in an earthquake, what goes through your mind immediately right then and there? I really didn't feel anything. And I didn't feel fear until I actually saw people running. And then I started feeling very stressed and very scared. My immediate reaction was freezing more than so I didn't have the instinct to run, to be honest. And then when I was running, I was starting to feel so much stress and not being able to breathe because it was becoming real because of the reaction of people around me. And so that's kind of how I reacted. I kind of froze. And there's just a lot of numbness. And I think that I'm still very numb. I'm usually not somebody who has a difficulty crying about things and processing. And until now, like even the whole week there, I didn't cry. And I just feel that it's hard to imagine just how much Syrians have been going through. And so this is just this huge devastation that I'm feeling personally, I'm feeling as an organization, and also just at a national level of like our people, like the Syrian people of how many ways can people die? How many tragedies can the people survive? Our own organization, you know, feeling that we went back so many years. I felt that's the thing that I think is stuck in my mind the most is that I feel that we went back 10 years at least. And 
I don't know if we're strong enough as a people to be able to say like, oh, we're starting from here and let's go because it's so hard to go back. You know, we were at a stage at Karam where we're focusing on long term. We're investing in young people. We're thinking about university. We've gotten to the point not to say that people have gone through their trauma, but for little kids and people who've been living in a place in certain stability for so many years, they have gotten to the next stage. And so it's for us to all be collectively within like seconds be pushed back to that other stage is something that's just very hard to accept. I think I'm still like not being able to accept it. It is a very long road ahead. And I think it's very important to acknowledge when we talk about emergency, that emergency does not just involve the short term. It is very much a long journey of of being able to piece together, whether it is homes or whether it is ourselves. Like you said, Syrian people have been through a lot. And this is just another thing that we have to go through. I want to go back to the mental health piece for a little bit and acknowledge that we also have a space in Istanbul, Kerem House Istanbul. And uh, I want to talk about our team in Istanbul and how they too showed support and the collective community in Istanbul, how they also came together for um, their friends and Rehanli. Because we have to keep in mind that a lot of these studios and a lot of these students, they've, especially during COVID, these two groups got to meet and they got to spend time together virtually. So in a way, they do feel like they are together. And so... Lina, can you tell us a little bit about our team and Istanbul's response to the earthquake? Yeah, absolutely. The Istanbul team was incredible. Istanbul had its own, a very different purpose right after the earthquake. And it was a very important one is to reopen as soon as possible as a community center for the wider community. And we also resumed our studios Saturday after the earthquake, we resumed our studios. So we wanted to bring back the sense of normalcy as quickly as possible for our students as well as open it up for the wider community. What we started seeing was a lot of the families that we support were now receiving relatives from the south of like southern Turkey from different areas that were coming and staying in their homes. And so there we needed an outlet for these people. They also needed support. They needed food. They needed blankets. A lot of these vulnerable families now suddenly were overloaded with relatives that were coming with nothing. So we actually had an emergency response for the Istanbul community. Then the community center opened, the Kerem House opened, and we had activities for a lot of kids that were all coming to really you know, at some level, be together, gather, mourn. And our team itself, you know, there is no Syrian refugee in Turkey that doesn't know of people who were lost in this earthquake or people that have been affected, whether they're family members or friends. So they themselves were mourning and dealing with loss. Some of them had family that needed to be evacuated. So they had a lot of personal struggles and still they showed up to provide as much support as possible to the kids and to the families. And, you know, it's not just Syrians, Turkish too. A lot of like thousands of Turkish people have lost their lives as well. And so the Turkish community is also feeling this loss in a very deep way. So it was a collective loss. And so our team prepared activities and prepared a lot of things so that the kids can feel you know, joy and fun again, even though that might be so hard to even imagine. I witnessed that when I was there as well. The house is full during the day. We have fresh meals for everybody, a lot of games. 
they're playing outside in the garden. They're doing a lot of different things. And they also did some activities to assist people in the areas that were affected by the earthquake. So they were decorating gloves and hats and making teddy bears from scratch to send to Hatay. So they were doing something that also had the spirit of giving back. One of the most beautiful things I heard was somebody telling one of our mentors that because she spent two days at Karam House coming every day on Saturday and Sunday after the earthquake, they hadn't been able to sleep. And then she was able to sleep again. And when I was there, I also heard that from the mentors themselves, mm -hmm. that because of their activities at Karam House and being just pulled back into service, that they were able to also start sleeping again. That's so powerful. And I think we also need to acknowledge that these very people that are offering support mentally also, they themselves have been through a lot, whether it is our team and whether it is these students. Let's not forget the refugees that are now in a different country who have to learn a different language and a different culture altogether. So them really stepping up in this way and showing that support and showing that love from a distance is, is just so powerful and it speaks volumes. Absolutely. One of the most powerful stories that we have that I really um, admire is as we're starting to work on our emergency response, we noticed that there was a group of students in Daihanle that, first of all, these students were, came when we were doing the distributions. When our team was doing the distributions, they came and wanted to distribute themselves, and they'd actually collected a fund to buy bread and distribute. So it wasn't just that they wanted to volunteer, they actually fundraised as well mm -hmm. and wanted to help. And then we had the same group by themselves started, you know, they met a lot of kids from Antakya that were coming to Karam House and they found out some university students who'd lost one or two parents in the earthquake and their tuition, university tuition were, was due last week. And so they fundraised 38,000 Turkish liras, which is wow. about almost $2,000 that they fundraised themselves online to uh, be able to pay the tuition of these students. And they did it. And we heard about that and that inspired us to go and find more students that have been affected by the earthquake in Hatay and lost parents to also start providing tuition assistance to these kids. And so these are not students that we actually even knew before, and hopefully they'll become part of our community. But we've stepped in in an emergency way and supported their tuition payments last week. So far, nine students. That's wonderful. I think in times like this, this is when you really understand the true meaning of community. Community extends beyond just geographic, you know, areas. It's, it's you see people in need and you see people that need your support and you offer what you can. And I think we witness this even as a foundation and an organization in general, just the, the greater community stepping up to offer us support in our emergency response. And we've seen such an influx of donors and people who wanting to just support in any way they can. And we're so very grateful for everybody who contributed, no matter how big or small. It really is, it's what allows us to be able to be there for these people that are in need. Absolutely. The generosity of the community, our supporters, our donors, so many people stepped up in big ways. And it's been absolutely humbling and inspiring. And we're so grateful and we couldn't do any of this support without our, our supporters. So absolutely, it was, it was amazing to see how many people just cared so much and wanted to jump in and help. I mean, you worked a lot on the communications piece, and I know that that was very, very hectic. I think you should tell everybody, like, how, how was it for you in those first days and a couple of weeks after the earthquake? Because I know everybody on the, in the U.S. side, it was 24-7. Yeah, I mean, 
it's very hard to feel that you you want to do everything you can, but you're at a distance. So right away, first step is making sure your team on the ground is okay. And that was one of the biggest pieces just to make sure, okay, physically they're okay. Mentally, what can we do? And then moving forward, being able to kind of bring everything back on the ground and show it to people who can offer more support. It was a lot of just being able to kind of showcase everything that's going on without it being too sensitive, while also relaying the urgency and the need. Um, usually at Kerem, we kind of, that's, we're used to kind of showing the dignity and kind of showing people, highlighting the the uplifting moments and, and the possibility of what can become. And this was kind of a different response. As you said, unfortunately, we're used to it, um, given sometimes we do have to respond to more uh, heartbreaking moments, but still it was nonstop, I think, for about a week. But in the end, you know, we, we do what we can and we offer what we can. And it's us coming together with the team on the ground, being able to provide what we can for the community in need. I want to also say that, Lena, you, you were there and you took a lot of pictures on the ground. So we'll be sharing those on, on social media for anybody who wants to kind of see footage of the actual towns and these actual tents that, that you have been um, talking about throughout this conversation. But I think that takes us back to the concept of belongings. And, and here we are kind of talking about lost homes and all of that while bridging together, coming together as a community. So what does all of this really tell us about the concept of belonging and, and what it actually means to belong? That's a very difficult question. And it's been really hard to think about the podcast, to be honest, in terms of the meaning of belonging and belongings, especially when I was walking in Antakya and you could see literally people's belongings left behind. I think when we started the podcast, it was talking about something, a loss that had happened, that there was enough time and distance to start talking about it. And now it's very, very raw. Even from Asala, our teammate who lost her home, I had interviewed her for the podcast in January, and she posted on Instagram this whole piece about how she doesn't understand what belonging even means anymore, because where she began to feel that she belongs, which was Antakya, was ripped away from her. And it's, you know, I don't know how many times people, some people have lost their homes now multiple times, not just twice. So it's a difficult subject. It's an important one. But it's very, very raw right now. And so it's going to have, I think, you know, we have some episodes coming up that we recorded before the earthquake that we definitely want to share. But past that, I think we even have to start looking at what this means and what does even like rebuilding mean, recovering, getting through trauma. There's a little bit of a shift in the lens. Yeah. I think these are terms that they are going to be defined in many different ways as we move forward, as kind of the the true cost of this earthquake starts to reveal itself. Lena, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? You know, we have a long road ahead. What you brought up was really important. Emergency aid is not just right now, it's for the next, you know, months for the countries. It's going to be years and so I think as Karam, we are stepping in as much as we can where we find gaps and we're finding lots of gaps right now. And we want to support on mental health. That's a priority. And beyond that, I really want to be able to preserve continuity of education and continuity of 
the children's healing and the youth's healing because we don't want to lose what we gained in terms of people's education and their pathway. So that's going to be the biggest priority on how do we actually make sure it's kind of like what we did in the pandemic, but this is just a very different scope of how do we make sure people can stay on track on their pathways to leadership. I also want to acknowledge that Ramadan is upcoming, the holy month of Ramadan, in a few weeks. And so what is the implication of this earthquake on that, whether it's people in Turkey or people in Syria? I mean, the, the need is extreme because, you know, we always support in Ramadan and by giving people, we made a tradition of having community iftars and we've also give people, the families we support, grocery cards. We believe, like you said earlier, dignity and choice is really important. So we try to provide people with as much dignity as possible and aid. So we're still going to be doing a lot of grocery cards for our families, but we're going to be needing to work a lot in camps. So we're looking already into several camps, both inside Syria and in Turkey, to provide fresh cooked meals. And actually, uh, one of the camps that we're going to be starting to support inside Syria, they've already started their Ramadan project early because there's thousands of people in these new camps that were created after the earthquake that just don't have access to food. And so a project that was going to happen later in Aleppo, uh, the traditional Aleppo Ramadan project to feed people is starting about 20 days early to provide uh, meals for people in the camps. So we're going to be starting to support people before Ramadan and throughout Ramadan. That's really good. So in our immediate response to the earthquake, not only did we need to make sure that our team was okay, but also the community that we support. So our team on the ground was tasked with the difficult responsibility of kind of calling everybody to make sure they are okay and making sure their families are okay and safe. And unfortunately, while the majority of the community we, we were able to hear back from, we did hear the unfortunate news that some people in our community did unfortunately lose their lives as a result of this earthquake. So I do just want us to take a moment to honor these lost lives as a result of this this earthquake. Yes, this news was really devastating. There was something eating away at us from the beginning, knowing that we were probably not going to be able to get through this without loss of life. And unfortunately, we lost 10 of our students in the earthquake. And in addition to that, most of them died with their families. So it's entire families of loss. I remember seeing some of these kids when I was in January at Karam House because we'd started to bring people in from Antakya to Karam House at, throughout last year after the pandemic and we're opening up. And so that was, you know, one of our, the spaces that we're actually very excited about to serve a lot of young people in Antakya. So I saw some of these kids, especially I remember Ahmed and I remember Yazan very clearly because I spoke with them last month. So it's extremely devastating to lose our future young leaders. And we had a really big response when we announced the loss of what I really appreciated is that everybody who communicated their condolences to me and to the organization referred to them as young leaders. And I really loved that because it meant that people really understood what we were trying to do all these years. Sometimes you don't know if people actually acknowledge that. And so everybody referred to them as we give you our condolences for the young leaders, because it's a tremendous loss for the community, for Syrians, for Turkish communities, everybody, because these kids 
we're really on pathways to do great things to serve the community. So I just liked, before we leave, I just like to mention their names and you can see their photos on our Instagram and please pray for them and their families and all of their relatives and all of the kids that are also affected by this earthquake. And some of them are homeless. Some of them have lost parents and relatives. We just ask for all of your support and prayers for all of these people. So the people that we lost are young leaders, Sidra, Aisha, Hajar, Tala, Yazan, Hussam, Sundus, Ahmed, Rashid, and Abdel Nasir. Allah irhamkon, Allah sabbar ahalkon. We really are going to miss you and we'll never forget this loss. We won't. Allah irhamun. Lina, we talked a little bit about how emergency response is actually a long-term response. So for anyone listening in and for anyone who wants to find ways that they can to support this community in great need, how can they do so? Well, we have our emergency campaign. It's on our website. It's on all of our social media, karamfoundation.org. We need the support. The support is long-term. When you hear this, probably our Ramadan campaign might not be up yet, but it'll be up soon. So if you want to contribute directly to Ramadan, that will be an option available. And we can add that probably to the links to the episode. And you know, tell all of your friends. We're very used to, even now, the fact that these tragedies come and these huge catastrophes come and they go and they're no longer on the news, but everybody, the victims and the survivors are left behind and their long road to recovery exists and their suffering exists. So please don't forget about the victims of the earthquake and support in any way that you can. We appreciate it. We really do. Well, you know, thank you so much for speaking about all of this You've been such a leader through all of this, and I can speak for this firsthand. You know, kerem means generosity in Arabic, and that doesn't just pertain to the level of support we offer the community, but it's the level of you stepping up in your response and you being a true leader to us. So thank you so much. You've showcased such bravery in your response and and being with the team and being there for them and showing them that we're here even from a distance. And you've been there for us, even here in the U.S., as we've kind of tried to navigate our way through all of this. And we're in it for the long run. The community still needs us and and we're here for them. But I I do want to thank you for everything you've done for us and and everything that you continue to do for us here on, on Team Karam and for the community on the ground. Thank you, Rama. And right back at you, this is a team effort and your leadership means a lot and your support means so much. And communications is such a hard job in this period of creating that balance between all of the different pieces that you need to respond to. And I know that you put in a lot of long nights into this effort as well as everybody else on the team. So we all work together and I'm glad that people can see the results of all of this work. And hopefully you'll see more and more of the emergency response efforts that will continue to uplift people, continue to center dignity. And we want to do emergency in the Karam way. So we're figuring that out as we go along and we'll be sharing all of those things with you. And the last thing I want to say before we go in the spirit of belonging is to really give a moment of gratitude to your own homes. This is something that's stuck with me since I got back is that we take our homes and our safety for granted. And so just think a little bit about your homes and where you are and your families and 
reflect a little bit of gratitude and let's not take these blessings for granted, the blessings of safety and the blessings of belonging and home. That's so true. Thank you so much, Lena. Thank you, Rama. We'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.